welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Thank you, Luke, for sharing that word this morning. Good morning, everyone. Great to start this new year, 2021, and I'm privileged to be kind of the kickoff preacher for this year. Uh, last Sunday, you might recall that Elder Becky Jones uh, helped us frame uh, the 2020 tumult. Uh, she concluded her message on Psalm 73 with the phrase, nevertheless, dot, 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 God. Uh, nevertheless, this too will pass. In the grand scheme of things, uh, God's got it under control. This morning, I want to take us a little bit different direction, and that is to kind of kickstart the year around the message of, that uh, Luke read to us out of Luke chapter 5. Our, our fundamental identity as Christians is that we are followers of Jesus in all that we are and do. I have a friend of mine who describes himself in this way. He says, I am a disciple of Jesus disguised as a furniture salesman. I love that. You know, he's got a job as a furniture salesman, but who he is 24-7 is to be an apprentice to Jesus Christ. That's what he understands himself to be. Disciples, you see, are fixated on Jesus. But my question this morning is, how do we keep this relationship alive? What is there about Jesus that will continue to captivate us? What will induce us to follow him? John Ortberg, formerly pastor at Menlo Church up the, up the road a bit here, said very arrestingly, he said, no one can be a disciple of Jesus because you think you should. You actually have to want it. No one can be a disciple of Jesus because you think you should. You actually have to want it. So my question this morning is, what's that want to? What makes us want to follow Jesus? What is there so compelling about Jesus that will turn aside every other claim upon our life and set our course to walk in his steps? I see Jesus as an equal balance between fascination and fear. Can't live without him, can't live with him. As much as he affirms, he disturbs. As much as he gives us a singular focus, he complicates our decisions. His yoke is easy, but his way is hard. He's the confounding Christ. And I think that's what we find. We are, on one hand, naturally attracted to Jesus because of the magnetic personality that he is, and we are alive when we are around him. And at the same time, we are pushing him away because he shows us things about ourselves that we do not want to see. And that's the encounter that uh, Peter has, uh, as was read in our text this morning out of Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This push and pull of discipleship that is so dramatic in this incident uh, with Peter. So let's, let's delve into it. Let's set the scene here. Um, the crowds are pressing in on the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, as referred to in the text. Um, Jesus is sort of backing up against the sea because of the crush of the crowds. He looks around, sees a Peter's boat, gets in that boat, turns it into a floating pulpit, and instructs the people while he's out in the water because there's some separation there. Interestingly enough, we have no idea as to what Jesus taught that day because that's not the import of this particular incident. Upon completion of his teaching, Jesus proceeds to set up Peter with a command. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets, Peter. Now, you feel the immediate exasperation born of exhaustion from Peter. Where he responds, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I love the, the Eugene Peterson translation of the message. Master, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught a minnow. Now, not only is Peter exhausted, 
But you get the sense that he thinks Jesus is just out of his element. I mean, we're from a long line of fishermen. We know how to fish these seas. You don't put nets out in the water when the light is up because the fish can see the nets. That's why we fished all night. But it's as if Peter's thinking, Jesus, why don't you stick to preaching? Let us handle the fishing. Well, out of sheer reverence, so he says, Master, at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, at this point, I don't think Peter had any expectation that there was going to be any great catch of fish. But it seemed like as soon as those nets hit the water, the signal went out. There, every fish in the region, get into those nets. Your time is up. <laughs> Two boatloads of fish, uh, and they're trying to haul it in. Now, my concern this morning is, is Peter's reaction to this particular instance, the life of which he had never seen or heard. I mean, this is a whopper of a fish story, right? If Peter was focused simply on financial gain at this moment, what would he have done? He would have turned to James and John and said, contact our lawyer, write up a contract, let's get Jesus onto this fishing crew, we can make a bundle. <laughs> but that was nowhere in Peter's conscience at this point. And that's what I want to focus on here. Simultaneously, we see Peter attractive to Jesus, attracting to him, and yet being disturbed by him. And so verse 8 is really the center verse of this, this text. When Simon Peter saw this, this great catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Message translation. Master, leave. I'm a sinner, and I can't handle this holiness. Leave me to myself. Psychologists would call this cognitive dissonance, two competing thoughts and actions combining and clashing with each other. Peter is in a head-on train wreck at this point in terms of his thoughts and his actions. On the one hand, he is magnetically drawn to Jesus. If I visualize this scene correctly, Jesus, Peter gets out of the boat. He high-steps it through the waters. He's running up the sea, throwing himself down in front of Jesus and ne never feeling more alive than he felt at that moment. Yet at the same time, what is he doing? He's pushing him away. Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Master, leave. I am a sinner. I can't handle this wholeness. Leave me to myself. Cognitive dissonance. Clashing of two experiences at the same time. And I think it's, frankly, it's this push and pull, this attraction-revulsion, this fascination-fear dynamic is what keeps the relationship with Jesus alive. And so I want to delve into that this morning. What's that look like here in Peter's experience and in this text of Scripture? The first thing we notice is that Peter is repelled by the presence of the Holy One of God. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. Go away from me. I'm a sinner. I can't handle this holiness. Peter had no category of human understanding to comprehend what was happening around him. Who is this man that can do these things? His environment is out of control, seemingly orchestrated by Jesus himself. And so the normally hidden glory of God for that moment has unveiled itself in that experience all around him. There's a parallel experience in the Old Testament with the prophet Isaiah when he is called to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It's at a time when a human sovereign, a human king, has died, and Isaiah gets to see the picture of the sovereign 
who is in control of all things. So we read in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, King Uzziah had been one of the generally good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah for about 60 years. And when a king dies, that leaves a power vacuum. What's going to happen next? Who will take his place? There'll be a power struggle that will occur. And it's in this context that Isaiah sees the sovereign, who is the one ruling over all. All things are under control because there is one who is over, overseeing all of this. And then there's these strange creatures that are floating around called seraphs. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Maybe even the sheer brilliance of God was too much for them. With two, they covered their feet. Maybe they, they even had a sense of shame. With two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And then immediately something happens in the environment around Isaiah. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, any of us who lived in California for any period of time would immediately think of what? Earthquakes, right? Did you feel the earthquake yesterday morning? 642? Yeah, a little rumble uh, that occurred. 4.3 magnitude. Have you ever been in the presence of a power like an earthquake that threatened to take your life? Maybe some other natural disaster that occurred. Well, certainly for us uh, as Californians, uh, my wife and I lived in California, I said most of our life, we, reg we survived many an earthquake, and particularly the one that occurred on October 17th, 1989 at 5.04 p.m called the Loma Prieta earthquakes. I was pastoring a church in Saratoga, about 10 miles from the epicenter when it was occurred. My wife was an elementary school principal right nearby. You might recall that that was the Bay Area World Series that had just about ready to begin with Oakland A's and San Francisco Giants uh, playing at Candlestick Park. That was postponed immediately <laughs> because of what had taken place there. I had just started a meeting in my office uh, at 5 p.m. It was kind of a tense meeting because of the subject matter. That meeting was over at 5.04 p.m. We dove under the lip of my desk, waiting for things to go around us, 15 seconds that would change our life. And once we checked our body parts, <laughs> we said, okay, we're still all together here. We're out in the parking lot, heading home, trying to find out what happened uh, in our own homes. There was a power that was unleashed here around Isaiah. But this power came from the holiness of God that affected his surroundings. And like Isaiah, Peter is overpowered. And this overpoweringness, the holiness of God, produced a sense of moral corruption. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Isaiah has the same experience. He's in the presence of a holy God. And what does he say? Woe is me. In Hebrew, Oy vey, East Mir. Ever heard that expression? Oy vey. And then he goes on and says, I am ruined. I'm disintegrating. I'm coming apart at the seams. I can't hold it together because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why this reaction? 
Why would Isaiah and Peter focus on their inner twistedness when they encounter the holy God? Well, the word holy literally means to cut or to separate. Uh, In common parlance, we might say that the standard of an industry is a cut above, to translate it into our, our language that we would use. In theological language, we call this transcendence. The word transcendence means to exceed the usual limits, the standard which everything else is, is compared to. And I think up to this point, Peter was probably like most human beings, morally adrift, generally easy on ourselves. We tend to grade on a moral curve, uh, not some absolute scale. Sure, we have our little foibles or bad habits, but doesn't everybody? We might say, certainly I'm no saint, but I'm generally a good sort of person. We assume that God has the same complacency about our shortcomings as we do. Until. <laughs> Until we are revealed. I'm going to take you back for a moment to the days when you were in school. Some of you still are. You don't have to go back very far. Some of it has to go back a long ways. Who was the most hated person in the classroom? Remember that test that you took and you walked out of there and you said, where did the professor get that stuff? I took copious notes. I read the textbook. I don't remember any of that being in there. And you're thinking, the only way I'm going to survive this test is if the professor grades on a curve. Uh, my, my 40% might be a passing grade <laughs> if he grades on a curve. And lo and behold, you hear, the yeah, professor's going to grade on a curve. And then what happens? There's a curve breaker. Somebody scored 100% on that exam. You think the day those tests were passed back out in classroom that we got up and stu- gave a standing ovation to the curve breaker? No. <laughs> Showed us the gap between us and, and that person. Well, Jesus is the curve breaker. Peter saw himself for the first time from the vantage point of the holiness of God, and Peter stood exposed. If we want to follow Jesus, he will keep exposing those areas of our life that we want to have stay hidden. He'll keep boring in. He'll not let us off the hook. He will keep turning over the rocks in our life and see what crawls out. But he does that for our benefit so that we can become more and more like him. The testimony of those who walk with Jesus in the deepest way and have had the light of Christ shine upon them say the closer they get to Christ, the more of themselves that they see. We'll never get over that aspect of this. And so we pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So on the one hand, Peter experienced Jesus as a disturbing, troubling, convicting purity who could see straight into the depths of his soul. And so he says, depart from me. He's in pain, moral anguish. Oswald Chambers puts the experience of Jesus like this. If we have never had the experience of taking our commonplace religious shoes off of our commonplace religious feet and getting rid of all the undue familiarity with which we approach God, it's questionable whether we have ever stood in his presence. The people who are flippant and familiar are those who have never been introduced to Jesus Christ. Peter has been so introduced. Have we? 
And yet that's only half the story. It's only part of it. Because on the other hand, Peter is magnetically drawn to the life-giving spirit and presence of, of Jesus. Peter's repulsion is only half the story. The other half of the story is that to be around Jesus is to be around one who is life itself. The same time Peter was pleading for Jesus to leave, he was on his knees worshiping him. I envision him holding on to Jesus' robes even as he is saying, depart from me because I'm alive. I've never been more vital than I'm experiencing right now, even in my pain, being around him. You see, Jesus had charisma. It's interesting to me that on the greatest day of fishing success that Peter has ever had, with a whopping fish story to tell, <laughs> he's called away from that to follow Jesus. Verses 9 through 11 of our text. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so they pulled their boats on shore and left everything and followed him. Jesus was such a compelling force, a captivating aura, that the person being associated with the person of Jesus was worth loss of all security. Uh, to do that. And I want us to see the biblical pattern here as we look at the back and forth between Isaiah and Peter. Because we note in Isaiah's encounter with the Holy One of God, and the Holy One of God was Isaiah's favorite designation for God. 25 times I think he uses it in the book of Isaiah. And when he sees himself, God does not allow him to be writhing in pain. Immediately, one of the seraphs takes a burning coal and touches the lips of Isaiah, his unclean lips, as he's confessed, and pronounces forgiveness. He says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is paid for. So this encounter uh, with God who exposes the corrupt spirit is immediately forgiven. And now that's the preparation for Isaiah being ready to respond to his call because the word goes out. Who shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah responds, what? Here am I. Send me. The same pattern seems to be occurring here with, with Peter. He's exposed. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And then immediately he's called. It's as if that's preparation. That encounter is necessary for him to be willing to let go and to be able to give himself over uh, to the Lord. Jesus called Peter and his fellow fishermen. Uh, to be a different kind of fishing business. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Jesus was now giving them the opportunity to be in part of an eternal enterprise that was the greatest mission you could be, ever be a part of. You get to be a part of my eternal work. That's what you're made for. That's why you're here, to be a part of that work. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, and if you haven't read that as a way of being exposed to the God that we, we serve, I just highly recommend it. But he has a, an, a, a kind of a story or an image that he has us use to understand the significance of the eternal worth of following our Lord. He says, imagine having the opportunity to meet somebody that you would consider kind of head and shoulders above anybody else who's the pinnacle of pinnacles. And maybe it's your industry or business. Maybe it's somebody because of their um, 
commitments, uh, their sanctity of life, uh, somebody that you really hold in highest regard, you get to have a one-on-one conversation with this person for an hour. Take your pick. When I think about that, I tend to think of more of historical figures um, that, that uh, have been alive than the ones that are currently alive. But I'm sure there's many current heroes. But I think of a man like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, or Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, William Wilberforce, who helped end slavery in the British Empire. These people who paid a price uh, for their commitment. If I had that one hour with them, wow. Who's that for you? Who would that be? that you would just love to think that, man, I could get this time. So that time comes. You sit down when you have the hour. And, and if this person that you greatly admire just kind of keeps things at the level of pleasantries and superficial conversation, you can say, well, you know, at least I can brag about it. Guess who I got to spend some time with? But what if they took you into their heart, started sharing with you the plans that they have, one of us, you could join them on that, those plans. And, and by the way, could I put you in my favorites? Could you be ready and available at a moment's notice if I gave you a call to join me? We'd walk out of that time kind of feeling pretty much alive ourselves, right? I think that's what Jesus does. He calls us to join him on his mission. It's an eternal mission that we get to practice here on the way to eternity. He says to us, I've got a job for you to do. And here's to do it. Were Peter and his cohorts up to the job? Of course not. That's why Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. <laughs> I will be the one who coaches you and empowers you uh, to become like that. Now, I've always thought that Jesus planned to use the likes of us as pretty silly, right? I mean, when you look at what we're made out of, we kind of say, well, yeah, that's, but that's his choice. That's his plan uh, to use us. But I would remiss to say in responding to Jesus' call upon our life, we have to face fear in our life. It's interesting that uh, the first thing that Jesus says to Peter after the call is, don't be afraid. Now, he's probably saying, don't be afraid of me. Uh, I've exposed you for what you are, and I haven't done this to harm you. I've done this to heal you. But I think he's also speaking to the deeper fears that Peter and maybe his companions must have had. Um, You're asking me to leave my fishing business? This is all I've ever known. Who's going to provide for my family? And by the way, where are we going? (laughs) Uh, And what's this fishing for men all about? To follow Jesus on his terms will stretch us beyond anything we can imagine. And so let me personalize uh, these fears, because I would say every major growth step into obedience that I've had has come in the context of facing fear. In the late 1980s, I was writing a book, and I had all the fears uh, that probably what I call Moses fears. Uh, Who am I? So I think I have a word to say to the church. What if the publisher doesn't want it? What if they do publish it and nobody buys it? (laughs) Well, that book later became known as Unfinished Business, Returning the Ministry to the People of God. And I was asked because of that book to teach a class in the Doctor of Ministry program at Fuller Seminary. This is the late 1980s. I was 42 years old. Uh, I responded to the invitation to teach because I was flattered. 
And then I had an emotional meltdown, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm standing before peers, uh, some of which are going to be 10, 15 years older than I. What am I doing? The first time I taught the course, it was a week-long seminar. I don't think I slept that entire week because of the fear of standing before these fellow pastors. But those fears were nothing compared to being invited to minister in a maximum security prison in Texas uh, who were using some of my discipleship materials. Whenever I heard people give testimony about prison ministry, my internal response was this. Thank God you were doing that. I can't imagine doing that myself. When I think of San Quentin or some of those places like that, all I felt was, was overwhelming fear. I was the last person I thought would be involved in this. But I showed up to this maximum security prison in Texas, heard the clanging doors behind me the first time I went in, and then I saw a message on the, on the fence. No hostages beyond this point. Think about that. Okay? I had to think about that, and I thought, oh my God, they're going to shoot all of us right here. That's what happens. And I mingled among the men, and then God ambushed me and gave me a call to be involved in prison ministry. A friend of mine said to me, you know, you are the last person in the world I would ever have thought would have been involved in prison ministry. And I didn't say to him, well, thanks for the affirmation. <laughs> I said, I agree with you. I am the last person I would have ever thought would have been involved in prison ministry. Never saw that coming, given my own internal fear. So for the last seven and a half years, I've been going to the correctional training facility uh, in Soledad State Prison, uh, and except for the pandemic, which they don't allow us in, and uh, see Jesus transform people's lives. I tell them, the guys, this all the time. I said, I come here because I see Jesus in you. Some of you might recall the cult classic movie, The Blues Brothers. That strike a bell for any of you? The late John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd played a couple of ex-wannabe musicians, ex-convict wannabe musicians who were trying to raise money for an orphanage. Anytime they were asked about their work, they had a standard response. What was that? We are on a mission from God. And they said it actually as if they believed it. But that was really the central joke of the story. These clowns are on a mission from God. <laughs> you clowns me clown, I'm on a mission from God. Yeah, he writes us into the story. He says, I've got a part for you to play. Os Guinness in his book, The Call, puts it like this. Deep in our hearts, all want to find and fulfill a purpose bigger than ourselves. Only such a larger purpose can inspire us to heights we know we can never reach on our own. For each of us, the real purpose is personal and passionate, to know what we are here to do and why. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, wrote in his journal, the thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wants me to do. The thing is to find a truth that is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. Mark Twain is attributed with the well-known quote, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. So what's that call, a purpose for you? Why has Jesus made a claim on your life to follow him? 
What does he have for you to do? For all of us, there is certainly a shared mission, and that is to introduce people to Jesus himself and help them follow him as well. But there's also particular claims on our life. Merson uh, put it this way, there are two holes in our heart. There's a hole in our heart to know God. Peter has encountered that experience. But then there is a second hole in our heart to fulfill God's call on our life. And they come in that order. We encounter God first. We see ourselves. And then we respond, Lord, here am I. Send me. So in the pattern that we see in Peter is that he comes to terms with the ugly side of himself because he's exposed to the holiness of God. And then it's as if Jesus says, okay, now I got you where I want you. <laughs> uh, now here comes the call to come and respond and to put your life in my hands. Jesus is confounding because he's ever interesting, infuriating, engaging, troubling, challenging, but I assure you, never dull. No one can be a disciple of Jesus because they think they should. You actually have to want it. Do you want it? Really? Do you want it? Because if you don't want it, there's something else you want more. And you'll go after that. Let's pray. Lord God, search our hearts. Know our thoughts. Shine the light of Jesus deep into our recesses of our being. May we see you for who you are. See ourselves for who are we are before you. Confess our lack. Confess our need. Confess our brokenness. Yield our lives to you so that we can respond to that call. Here am I. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.